Today, we're looking ahead to the next academic year, to welcoming a new cohort of students, many of whom have just gone through their first public exams. For those who come from England, Wales or Northern Ireland, their GCSE years were dominated by COVID and the lockdowns. Most of them sat teacher-assessed papers at home after months of online education and all of them faced a cut-down syllabus, missed out on practical skills and not to mention the loss of social and extracurricular opportunities. Welcome to Accommodation Matters, where we take a deep dive into important and upcoming issues relevant to student accommodation and to the wider student experience. I'm Jenny Shaw, and we're discussing the results of the annual Unite Students and HEPI Applicant Index today, what it means for us in student accommodation and beyond. And as usual, I have a panel of experts with me in the studio. Professor Tony Moss is Pro Vice-Chancellor at London South Bank University. Hi, Tony. Hi, Jenny. And James Greenwood is Head of Residential Life at LSE, Chair of Residence Life at Cubo and the Global Initiatives Chair-Elect for QOI. Hi, James. Hi, Jenny. And Rose Stevenson is Director of Policy and Advocacy at HEPI. Hi, Rose. Hi, Jenny. Excellent. So let's get right into the report and what it's telling us. So there's plenty of positive news and some early signs that young people have collectively begun to recover from the impact of the pandemic. But there's a very striking finding about just how many applicants have missed school due to their mental health over the last two years. So, Tony, I want to come to you first. What do you think is behind the statistic and what are the implications for learning and teaching at universities? Thanks, Jenny. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, probably not an unexpected finding given what we've seen, particularly during the pandemic and the cost of living pressures that students are facing and people in, in general are facing. In one of my other roles as a school governor, I've seen that there are a primary, secondary school with the return back to education. There were very different approaches, I think, to uh, supporting young people after having spent significant amounts of time away from their peers during really important developmental milestones and the different approaches broadly speaking i think were whether or not the education provider education set in school college and so on focused on recovery of, of lost learning or whether there was a focus on well-being and that form of recovery as being equally important and just anecdotally based on my experience it was quite evident that schools and colleges and, and universities in fact who saw that recovery in terms of emotional well-being and resilience. We valued that and saw that as an important aspect of the, the reintegration back into uh, education, actually saw better outcomes for young people than those that just felt they had to really drill this kind of lost learning. So I, I think partly that will explain where that's come from. In terms of the impact for learning and teaching in universities, I think this is something that we need to acknowledge is part of the, the lived experience of students coming into uh, providers. I just recently had a, a panel with uh, a group of apprenticeship students at the Advanced AG conference, and one of them described herself as a COVID student, referring to her experience of when she was at college prior to starting a degree apprenticeship. And that really sort of resonated with There's this identity almost of young people coming into AG now that see themselves as this you know, COVID student or a pandemic student. And so from a university perspective, we can't take that away. And I think we need to understand that that's there and it's present. I think there's a lot more learning that we need to do to understand how to support students coming into higher education. I think that's always been the case, and, and there's a lot of work, as we know, across the sector on supporting mental health uh, amongst our student body. 
I think really what's happened with the, the legacy of the pandemic is it's made it even more salient. I think it's really helpful to see that being surfaced in, in the report. James, I wanted to come to you now uh, to ask you about the findings on loneliness, because residential life is really about creating that community. And elsewhere in the survey, applicants say they really do want that sense of belonging, that sense of community. So what did you think about the results and what can we do? First of all, I don't think the results were that surprising or shocking. The data definitely echoes some of the the data that we're seeing at various universities. And I know locally at LSE, we do a student satisfaction survey each year. And unfortunately, we are seeing a dip in sense of belonging and community. And it's something that we're going to be working on locally. So that wasn't shocking to me. And I think there's a there's a few reasons behind some of that. You know, previously, some of our cohorts that were the COVID year cohorts back then were totally reliant on their local community and their halls. Very different now. They've got that freedom, I guess, to explore London, explore outside of their halls. So they're not as reliant on their local community. But also, as Tony just touched on, we're seeing that lost learning, but more importantly, that lost social experience of getting to know other students and, and, and other people and peers. So a lot of my team are having those conversations now about um, how to integrate well with each other and how to get on as a community. We have all of those flatmate disputes that we have to deal with, but we're definitely seeing that. And a terminology I'm hearing quite a lot, similar to what Tony just said, is they're calling themselves the Gen COVID or Generation COVID, which I find quite interesting. But there's loads of things I think that universities and accommodation providers can do to make that a bit better and make that transition and and support a bit better for students. And some of that I think could be done quite early. It's not about when the student arrives at the university or the accommodation provider, actually, let's start that process now. So I think it's really important to try and provide as many opportunities as possible for students to get to know each other before they get to the university or the accommodation. And that, you know, can be virtually via various different networks, social media, maybe webinars that the university might want to put on. I hope, and we do this at LSE, that this builds much stronger social connections before students arrive and it reduces some of that anxiety too around moving to a new place and meeting new people. Alongside that I think it's really important that universities and and accommodation providers provide a broad range of social opportunities and as part of the welcome experience that there's lots for students to do but those experiences I think need to transform and, and become much more inclusive. I think back in the day we would have just put out some pizza or some drinks and actually now It's much more than that. It's about including all students from all different backgrounds. So quieter events, activities for students that might tick a box in terms of their personal interests or needs. Safe spaces, for example, for LGBTQ students or black students. We do many alcohol-free events. So keeping that as inclusive as possible. And I think obviously it's, it's important for the accommodation provider or the university or the university hall to have a really strong connection with the wellbeing support that's available to students either locally within the university or outside of the university. And think about your teams too. Think about who's trained and what they're trained in. Again, back in the day, we would have made sure that our receptionists are well-trained in terms of mental health. But actually, we're going one step further now and thinking about specialist LGBTQ training for those uh, receptionists. And, and, And what more can we do for staff of all levels? And I think the key thing, I mean, I've had four meetings already this morning and they're saying the same thing over and over and over, which is talk to students, keep talking to students about what opportunities they want and how do they want it? What wellbeing support do they want and how do they want it? I don't think it's too difficult to have a conversation with students and 
keep that conversation flowing and, and use those focus groups and conversations to feed some of our bigger strategies for both accommodation and res life within the university side. Thanks, James. And I just want to pick up on a couple of things you said. One is the importance of starting now. So I think there's quite a lot in the report which talks about the apprehension and things that applicants are not confident about or don't know. So things like not being confident registering with a GP, for example, about half of them being concerned that they're not going to fit in. So there's quite a lot there pre-arrival, isn't there? There's quite a lot of work to do. I think, with applicants to make them feel confident coming to university and and maybe get the best experience when they're there. Yeah, I totally agree. And and that's some of the work that we do at LSE locally for our welcome webinars, we call them. They're very clear on what to do, when to do it, how to do it and, and who to contact. So things like registering at the GP or the dentist and actually what does a GP mean to a lot of international students that you would never use the word GP. So we try also to think about the terminology that we use in terms of that welcome experience for those students. But I still think there's a lot that can be done. Some students are quite comfortable and they don't need that. But we do really have to think about those students that might need it or, or at least having the reassurance behind the scenes that they know that that's there if they ever need it. Tony, what does this look like at LSBU? With the student demographic and the, and the profile of students, it, it looks quite different in some ways. I mean, just to give some figures, so we have a, a pre-entry or personal development survey that we ask our students to complete effectively as a, as a mechanism for helping students to let us know what support development needs they have. And there'd be some really quite striking things that we've learned about our student body beyond the kind of usual high-level demographic data that, that we might look at. And one of the figures that really struck me was around 17% of our students come from households with zero income. So about another 50% on top of that have a household income of less than 25,000. There's lots of other of those sorts of statistics related to our student body that effectively amount to a particular challenge for us in actually how we can support those students to engage in some of those extracurricular activities that we know would, if they were able to engage with them, would help to build that sense of community and belonging and so on. I've literally had conversations with students who have said, you know, these things sound great when we're laying them on. Unfortunately, I'm leaving like a lecture to go and pick up a shift at work or collecting kids or uh, may have caring responsibilities. So, and I think for our institution, that's not just a small proportion. In many cases, it's the majority of our students. And it's, it's been really interesting working with our students' union that have taken quite um, a radical approach to this in terms of our societies and, and communities where effectively RSU have said going down this quite different line in terms of how they operate student societies and communities, whereby they're actually taking on all of the labour of organising events and so on and so forth. Because, again, our students are saying to us that they'd love to do those things, they don't have the time to do it. And I think absolutely, as as James was saying, the challenge of sort of almost helping students to to know what they don't know. So you you come to university, you you may be living away from home, you may be living at home, you know, what are the things that you don't know and the approach that we're taking to providing this personal development survey gives us a way to understand those questions around, you know, we don't just ask them about academic skills and finance, but also do they feel confident about living independently? And we see some really interesting responses from our students, but I think it's, for me across the sector, I think one of, one of my personal bugbears across the sector is we often talk about HE as though it's this big homogenous whole, and of course we've got such a diversity, even just within London, different types of universities, very different student body profiles, you know, some institutions, very high proportion of 
international students, others that have a, a much more local demographic. And I do think there's more that we could be doing as a sector to understand more about our own student body uh, and about their needs. But I think it really is becoming quite acute for us now, certainly from an OSBU perspective, seeing the things that you might traditionally say would be, if we just do those, it would be good for the students. Our students are actually telling us they can't access it. And so we're having to think about other ways to actually think about different ways of doing things that may raise some eyebrows. I think OSU have, have said that conversations they've had with other SUs, people are sort of, well, that sounds quite different. You know, are you sure it's going to work? But it really is reflecting the fact that to meet our students' needs, we do need to, to adapt and change. I think that's a really good point because one of the, the striking findings within the survey was how differently applicants are affected by the financial crisis depending on their circumstances, which, you know, it seems obvious, but while it, it does affect different individual students differently, it's a good point to raise that actually some institutions are affected more than others and actually affect your core approach. James, did you want to come in on that one? Yeah, well, I've worked at a few different universities within London and, and I know the differences very clearly across those different students. In my previous experiences have been with students that are before the cost of living crisis actually that have really struggled. Yeah, so my experience, I guess, of working at those different universities has really given me some very key skills to spot how to support different students from all different backgrounds and, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Different at LSE, we do have a lot of students that are from fairly wealthy backgrounds and we have a lot of postgrad students too, which means that the support that we provide is slightly different to maybe some of the universities. However, there are a number of students that still um, require lots of support, both socially, well-being and, and financially. And we are working with many institutions on that for some cross-collaboration work. And, and Unite Students actually are part of that. We work with the Unite Foundation to support some of our care leaver students too. I don't want to say that LSE is, is full of students with lots of money because that's not true. There are a number of students that need lots of financial support. Rose, I'd like to bring you in now because you were part of the workshop where we were devising the survey and uh, I think it was your idea to ask applicants how well they thought the PSHE curriculum had prepared them and the results were quite positive but absolutely not overwhelming. So uh, was that the result you expected for that question and what do you make of those findings? I think I was quite pleasantly surprised, actually, that 60% of um, applicants felt that their PSHE lessons had been good or excellent, and only 10% rated them as poor, which I think if you ask students about any subject at secondary school, that would be a fairly good outcome. But there were 30% that had kind of a neutral response, so there was plenty of room for improvement there. Speaking as a former secondary school teacher, unfortunately, PSHE is sometimes seen in schools as a bit of an add-on subject and it certainly doesn't have kind of the level of gravitas that English or maths or science would have. And I think partly because of that, you often get non-specialist teachers teaching PSHE. But if we look at the topics that we asked about in the survey, healthy living, mental health and well-being, and conflict resolution, they're incredibly important skills to have and I would suggest really, really difficult to teach. So I think, you know, having uh, specialist teachers focusing on these subjects, and there is a big movement, particularly around sex and relationships education, that this should absolutely be taught by specialist subjects, not poor old Mr. Andrew from geography, who's got to go in and teach these things with very little preparation. 
So I, I was quite pleasantly surprised, but I think given how important these topics are, it could be done better. Thanks, Rosa. I was really struck that when we asked some questions about sort of independence and confidence about various skills, the practical skills, they were all super confident about. But things around health, things around managing conflict, that sort of interpersonal side of things, they were much, much less confident. I'm going to come to Tony and James just for any thoughts and reflections of what kind of things would it be useful for applicants to learn before they come to university and particularly things that you find maybe they're less confident about at the moment? I guess my starting point would be that it's going to be different things for different groups of students, isn't it? That you've got students coming from very different backgrounds coming into AG and we know that those students whether you're an overseas student, whether you're a first-in family or a GBTQ plus student, so, you know, lots of different students who are going to face different barriers, if you like. But I think what kind of probably sits across that for me is students coming into university feeling empowered to and knowledgeable about how to access support and find out what it is that's available to them. Because one of the challenges, I think, and, and I mentioned the PDP approach that we take where very early doors and prior to students joining us wanting to find out what they see as their development needs so that we can tell them explicitly what we have available to them. Because I think we've always had this, this issue in, in higher education, possibly in education more generally, that, that very often we don't find out what students need until it's become a more complex problem. But very often you'll be reflecting, thinking if you knew about this six months ago, we could have done a lot more uh, and taken a more preventative approach. But I think students coming into particularly those that, that may not have the sort of social capital where they could speak to parents or siblings or extended family or friends to understand what it is that universities do and what universities have responsibility for and what sort of things they can ask for. I think if, if students came to us with a better understanding of that, almost an empowerment, if you like, I think that'd be quite a positive thing. Um, it's always really kind of heartbreaking when you, when you speak to a student that's got into a really difficult situation and you're doing your best to help them. And, and they might sometimes say to you, you know, I didn't come and tell you about this report. I didn't actually think it was your problem. You know, this was something that I felt was kind of like a, an outside of uni issue. And we're sort of sat there thinking, you know, we absolutely would have helped. But, but and some students will feel more empowered to ask for that support than others, I think. Um, I, I remember having conversations some years back about asking for help being a really key skill. And I wonder if that's something that might be useful to teach in schools in some way. Yeah, if I could just sort of throw in a, an experience we had with our PDP approach that so this academic year alone, we've had 330 students responding through the survey to tell us that they do have a disability they've not previously disclosed to us that's enabled us to get in contact. And this is at the moment still very anecdotal, but some of our academic staff have said that they wonder if part of that could be a sort of more cultural that in previous interactions, students haven't felt able to declare but once they were asked to fill out this survey, it felt maybe kind of less threatening just to tick a box to indicate, yeah, I think maybe I do need an assessment or I know I have a disability and need support. So, you know, sometimes I think it's also from our perspective, thinking about how many doors can we open for you to tell us, as opposed to saying we've got one route to declare this, and if you don't declare it that way, then you never get the support. But to say, actually, some students may feel more comfortable telling a person to you to others may feel more comfortable filling out an online form. James, how do we make it feel safe for students to disclose disabilities or, you know, any other needs that they've got? Well, I think, first of all, that we have to go a bit further back and, and culturally we have to 
acknowledge that we've got a lot of students coming to the UK from many different cultures where it just isn't seen as the norm to be open and honest about mental health or LGBTQ, etc. And I think that students are worried. I think they're genuinely worried that their family or their home institution, whoever might find out that information. And I think it's really important for us as, as universities to make that quite clear that we have very strict laws and legislation in the UK that would prevent that from ever happening. And we have clear processes within and policies within our universities to best support those students. But I think we have to really encourage students to be open and honest with us from the start. And some of that is, as I said before, it's about that pre-communication and that pre-engagement with the students where they can hopefully build up trust with us as a, a provider of education, that they are open and honest, because that's the only way we can best support students. And I do remember seeing a stat quite recently by Stonewall. I think it was about 67% of trans people will avoid being open about their identity to family, friends or or their employer, which is just insane, that kind of number. And and I can see that echoed in some of the research that's been done in this paper by Unite. So a lot of the work that I do over the next year will be to better support those communities across our buildings and our campus. But I think there's more that can be done. And I think it's very important for the university to build up those relationships as early as possible and be open and transparent to students. Thank you. And James, I know you've just been on a couple of study tours, and I'm wondering if there's anything that you learn on those tours that are going to be relevant, particularly to this incoming cohort of students. So yes, I've recently been on a tour across the states as part of my role with the QOI, which is the Association of College and University Housing Officers. It's an international group. But the experience, I have to say, across the states is, is very different to that of the UK students. Living on campus is, is normal and actually mandatory for a lot of first year students. Having a meal plan for your daily meals is also mandatory. So when we talk about community and community building, that's kind of seen as a, a natural thing that happens because the students are there they, they you know they don't have the opportunity to live a kind of a separate life in a way uh, and interestingly some of the data that we've got locally at LSE also supports some of that so sense of community is about 15 percent higher across our catered halls with meal plans versus students that don't live in catered halls so I think what we'll be doing over the next few years is looking at that in a bit more detail that data and look at how our buildings are configured to best support students to have stronger communities. We will, as I said, we'll be doing a lot of work in the next year about supporting LGBTQ students. We're going to be launching a few different new campaigns in collaboration with our students' union. But the experience of the States, I think there's quite a lot that can be taken from those students. There is a very strong culture of giving back to community, fundraising, doing good for your local community within the students and wider community. We don't tend to see that much at universities. That's not the culture within the UK and I'd like to try and push for that and advocate for that a little bit more in the future and the halls experience across the states is very central to the campus experience especially in London we don't have many universities that have their accommodation on the campus and that's not going to happen for a very long time and probably will never happen so we have to find get arounds to provide the best experience we can sport is a big thing too in the states and I guess that's another thing for us to consider in the future about how do we integrate sports to become part of the standard experience of most students as much as possible and sport can provide many different opportunities for students when it comes to community building and getting to know each other so there's a few learnings I've taken away and I'm sure at some point I'll write some form of blog on LinkedIn and share that out so you can see. 
That's great. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to come around and ask you all if there was anything else, any other statistics or findings from the survey that really stood out to you. And Rose, can I come to you on this one, please? Yeah, I, I've got a couple, actually. Um, we've talked quite a bit about confidence of specific skills that students would have or not have as they were coming to university. But I think there was a theme there running through for me, which is just about confidence. And we saw that students from independent schools or students from more affluent backgrounds tended to be more confident across the board. And it struck me there that as well as teaching the individual skill sets, can schools be developing confidence in itself? So we heard from Keir Starmer a little bit more about education policy from the Labour Party and they talked about oracy and speaking confidently. But I wonder if oracy is just one part of that confidence development process or whether that's something that needs to be looked at, particularly for students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who in your survey, Jenny, are showing to be less confident. And perhaps related to that, I think the thing that struck me the most in the survey was 30% of students saying they don't think they've got enough money to be at university. And that, that should be stopping absolutely everyone in their tracks. If university is becoming unaffordable for people, which we know it is from the Student Academic Experience Survey as well. And unsurprisingly, you know, there is a bigger impact there on applicants from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, it seems a little bit backwards to me if we are kind of promoting the work that universities are doing on mental health, but we're not tackling the underlying issue that's causing some of the mental health difficulties, which is that the student loan, as it stands, it isn't functioning for students that don't have income from their families to support them through universities. And to me, that's the number one policy area that needs to be fixed really at the minute is, is the maintenance loan. There's a massive risk that students aren't going to come to university and that if they do, they're going to have a bad experience or even worse, they're going to be dropping out and not finishing their course, which is awful for those students. It's going to be bad for social mobility, but there's a, a big impact on regulation for universities as well. Increasingly, universities are being regulated on their outcomes, who's finishing and what jobs are they going on to. So if you're a university that's doing a brilliant job on widening participation, on paper, it's going to look like you're doing a poor job because you'll end up with more students dropping out. And at the minute, the OFS won't take any kind of contextual approach to those outcomes because they believe all students should be able to achieve the same which is absolutely brilliant and noble if all students are on the same footing. But at the moment, they're not uh, because some of those students are having to work so many hours that they're struggling to keep up with their studies or they're struggling to actually stay at university because they can't afford it. And do you think we're storing up problems for the future here in terms of policy around maintenance support? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely has to be tackled. It's so clear in the data that there's two separate groups of students, those who've got that extra family support and can not only focus on their studies, but actually can engage with all the pieces we've been talking about, the sport and the community, et cetera, and those who can't. So, yeah, I think it's a huge problem. Yeah, if I could sort of come in on that, I think that issue about the funding is absolutely crucial. Again, we know that those students that, that Rose is referring to, that we know will face more challenges accessing and being successful through higher education, also not evenly distributed across the whole sector. And so the higher rate funding that, that universities can charge linked to their access and participation plans, the funding coming into institutions isn't equitable in that sense. To throw in a kind of a figure, a huge fan of the work of the Unite Foundation for Care Experienced Students, 
really commendable to see the University of Sheffield I've learned recently about their approach to I think it's up to £10,000 as a bursary that's given to care experienced students to support them. The challenge with that is when I look at the student population of care experienced students at LSVU, for us to fund something like that would cost us well in excess of £7 million a year and that would be an investment just for our care experienced students. And so the thing that we know would work actually can't be funded out of uh, standard universities, uh, typical universities' budget. So it does beg a question, do we need more of a pupil premium type approach? You know, equally, if a student is getting 10000 from one university, does that then mean the student may feel they can't choose potentially to move? Because if they do move, they would lose access to that, that funding that's coming from a specific provider. So I do feel quite strongly that this is something that we can talk about fair access and participation and equality of opportunity to risk. But when we know that there are institutions that have much larger numbers, and you know, the absolutely is, is one of them, much higher numbers of students that have a greater need for that support, it's disingenuous to an extent. The other thing just I would pick up on was back to the point made earlier around apprenticeships. Of course, being a degree apprentice is a good way of avoiding stacking up quite a lot of their earning income while you're studying and still getting a degree at the end of it. Of course, nationally, what we've seen is that the overwhelming majority of apprentices are white, middle class, and also tend to be older students. But LSVU, our, our apprentice demographic bucks that trend, but our apprentice demographic is still less diverse than our four undergraduate students. So I think there is something there around um, the way that we're promoting these sorts of opportunities and alternative routes into and through higher education, where the kind of the access side of things could be improved. And I suspect that when it comes to apprentices, for students who don't have access to good quality information, advice and guidance, and can't speak to parents or, or siblings who know a bit more about the opportunities, probably just hear the word apprentice and think that it's the old-fashioned type of apprentice and it's not the same, whereas actually academically it's, it's entirely equivalent in terms of the, the qualification outcome. We're in the same boat, I guess, that we're, we're quite a small institution, so we're quite lucky that we can give out some of that funding however we're given at the moment the most funding we've ever given before in terms of bursaries and scholarships especially for accommodation this year we're giving up to two and a half thousand pounds a year towards accommodation costs on top of unite foundation and other academic bursaries too but as tony was saying we're kind of at the limit and and where does that kind of stop where does that money come from too in terms of long term and those expectations but also we have got to deliver the best value for money we can for students whether that's academically or within their living environment too and I think that universities for a long time I think have have almost been guaranteed that students are coming and now that's changing slightly but to do that we've got to continue to deliver the absolute best experience but also value for money for those students those students are paying incredible amounts of money so they deserve the best experience that we can provide Hopefully, we can see that more and more in surveys and benchmarking across the sector and those that maybe aren't providing the best experience, then it's a less desirable university for students to go to, regardless of where they fall within rankings. Finally, we ask this every year, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a new student starting university this year? Uh, Rose, do you want to take this one first? Uh, Yeah, my advice would just be to get properly stuck in give everything a go in your first year and it will help you find your tribe of people which is super important for the rest of your university experience and help you find the bits of academia that you're into but I appreciate that's quite tricky for post-covid applicants who haven't had tons and tons of practice on on those big scary social opportunities so yeah I think be brave and get stuck in that's great advice thanks Rose Tony 
Yeah, thanks. I think my advice maybe reflects what I said earlier about students coming into university and being willing to share with us what it is that they need. You know, come to university feeling that you're entitled to support, feeling that it's okay to let us know what it is that you need uh, and try to find out what we've got available. And just always remember this, you know, even though your university may not be able to solve every problem that you might face in life outside of university, it's never a bad thing to let us know and just talk to us about problems that you might be facing because you know, even if we can just direct you to, to other forms of support, it's always beneficial. That's a great message. And James? Mine's very similar. So um, don't be afraid to be your true self and speak to your university or accommodation team as well if you ever need any help. You know, There's no problem big or small. We've kind of dealt with it all. So we're prepared to deal with it again. Uh, please speak to us. That is great advice. And I think probably for accommodation teams as well, it's like just do let students know that you are open and that you have that diverse outlook and that it is a safe place. There's just so much that applicants don't know that they're fearful of and I think we can never go too far to reassure them really can we so we are coming up to time now thank you to all my guests today you've been absolutely fantastic and thank you to you for listening if you like the show and if you find it useful please do recommend it to others you can find us on our Podbean page or you can subscribe on any podcast app and that way you'll never miss an episode And if you have any ideas for future shows, please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. It's always really good to hear from you. So we're going to be back soon with a new episode. But in the meantime, I hope the summer period goes well for you and you take care.